Good morning, once again, good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. Thank you. We have, uh, this is the wrap-up of this teaching series. We've been talking about faith and finances. Faith does have an impact on our finances. I've said throughout this teaching series that, um, that you can tell a lot about a person by how they uh, invest their um, time and money, what they invested into effortlessly beyond uh, life's necessities. Uh, the things that we value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. So you just got to look at your practices and it tells you a lot about your values regardless of what you might say. And uh, we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, uh, but saving faith is never alone. It will always be accompanied by uh, action. We'll see that take place in our life. We'll see it in our finances. Um, one, of the, uh, one of my favorite illustrations that I've used here before, I'm going to use it again this morning, and it's uh, this. Let me just do a quick survey. How many have ever seen a postcard, a postcard of the Grand Canyon? Show of hands, okay. How many have ever actually been to the Grand Canyon? Show of hands. Okay. How many would say that there's a major difference between a postcard of the Grand Canyon and actually being at the Grand Canyon? Yeah, would you agree with that? Yeah, there's a major difference. A postcard of the Grand Canyon is nothing compared to standing on its edge entranced by beauty and glory. How many of you actually walked down into the canyon? A few folks? Yeah. That's crazy, huh? That was quite a, quite a trip. And so I wanted to use that as an analogy compared to God. A postcard view of God is nothing compared to being entranced by his beauty and glory. I think too often we have a postcard view of God. And God wants us to be entranced by his beauty and glory. Here's the thesis statement, the summary statement of our teaching here this morning. And you can see it. I think you can follow along there on your notes. Being entranced by God's beauty and glory in worship... In other words, an encounter with God, which we're going to talk about, is not only the best mood-altering drug or medicine, but, but also nothing will so transform your life. Nothing will make you more radically generous than an encounter with God. So two things we're looking at this morning. What does it look like to have an encounter with God? What does that mean to have an encounter with God? And then how will that transform my life? particularly in the area of my finances. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we'll read through our text and work through the notes. Father God, your beauty is breathtaking. Your glory is soul satisfying. And as it says in Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in our hearts than all the wealth, the comfort, the success, and acclaim this world could ever give us. God, we know there's no lottery winning that can ever compare to the wealth of your presence, the comfort of your love, the strength of your power, the acclaim of being called your child. Move these truths from concept to reality deep within our hearts this morning, giving us unspeakable and glorious joy. Teach us what it means to encounter you. May we encounter you through the study of your word. And may we see more clearly how that will impact our lives, particularly in the area of our finances, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. I'm going to read through it, and then we will uh, unpack it here. Starting in verse 29, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was, what's that word? Shaken. It was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now here's part of the, that's part of what happened as they encountered God. But something else is going to happen here. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's answer, first of all, the question, what is a God encounter? What is that? And then we'll look at the impact that that has in our life. First of all, what is a God encounter? Anytime you study the Bible, you always need to look at the context. What is the context of what we're reading here? The context is that the beginning of chapter 4, the leaders of this brand new Christian church, Peter and John, are preaching publicly, and they are arrested there's a couple of my favorite verses in, that, in this chapter, by the way. Uh, verse 13, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 13. It's a phenomenal verse. And it just says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> That's what Jesus does when you hang out with Jesus. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're hanging out with Jesus. We're getting to know Jesus. And so it will bring greater courage. In fact, it will make people around you kind of look at you and, you know, take a second look. Wow, what's going on in their life? So there was something that had happened as a result of them knowing Christ and experiencing him. And so they're hauled before the religious authorities and threatened not to preach about Jesus or they will be thrown into prison. My second favorite verse is verse 20 in this chapter where it says, they say, hey, stop talking about this Jesus. And what do they say? Anybody know? It's right there, verse 20. We can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. They had an encounter with the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they were so overwhelmed with the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is that they couldn't keep their mouths shut. So that's, that's part of what it means when you encounter God, when you walk with God. You get to know he's alive. He walks with you. You can know him. You can experience him. That's what they were doing. We, they were doing it literally, but then he would go on, and then they would do it spiritually because he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us as he was with his disciples. And so it's, it's pretty phenomenal. They said that we can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. And then, and then Peter and John come back to the people, that is the early church family, and report what has happened and so the people pray, and what we read was the end of the prayer. And, and this is what we know as a fact. It is a historical fact that the first century Christians met persecution, imprisonment, death with an astonishing courage. Why is that? 
because they had encountered God. They had encountered the living God, the God of the galaxies. And, and, and here's kind of a little, another statement that goes along with this. And we talked about it back during our Acts series. If you are shaken by God, you will be unshaken by anything in this world. And in fact, you will be a shaker of this world. And uh, so let's talk about this encounter with God. What does this encounter with God look like? Here's the first thing. It will bring a whole lot of shaking in your life. What is a God encounter? It will bring a whole lot of shaking in your life. Verse 31, and the place where they were gathered together was shaken. Exodus 19, chapters 19 and 20, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, it did what? It shook. Whenever something of greater glory comes into connection with something of lesser glory, glory meaning weight, significance, importance. So when something of greater glory comes down into something upon something of lesser glory, the thing of lesser glory is going to shake. And I don't know if you've ever had this, this experience or if this ever happened to you, but you plop yourself down on an old rotted lawn chair that is not ready for the full weight of your glory. That's saying it nicely. And it does what? It cracks, it trembles, it maybe even collapses. And uh, when God, when the God of the galaxies comes into your life, it is no small thing. It is no small thing. Now, we live in a day and time when people would relegate their encounter with God with, I sign the card, I walk the aisle, I got dunked in the tank, and yet with very little life change. There's a problem with all of that. Because I'm telling you, when you encounter God, it will bring change to your life. It will shake your life like it's never been shaken before. We live in a day and time when much, what, much of what is being preached in American society uh, in many churches is more of a man-centered gospel as opposed to a God-centered. It's very subtle. And, and by the way, this is very appealing to man, so you can build a lot of big, big churches with a man-centered gospel. And I call it more of what it is, and actually many theologians, and they've coined this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. And so it tends to have a very high view of man, very low view of God, as opposed to we should have a very high view of God and, a, and a, that will give us an accurate view of man. And this moral, moralistic therapeutic deism is moralism is more, the, the preoccupation is more about what you should do rather than on what has been done for you through Jesus Christ. The focus should always be upon what he's done for you. And then out of that flows what you should do. One of the things that you see here at Desert Breeze is we constantly work on the heart. We focus on what has Christ done for us because that's what transforms our lives. But moralism tends to, it it comes off more how-to, self-help, more emphasis on what you need to do. Thea's uh, moralistic therapeutic is more, the focus is more about your comfort and your happiness versus your character and your holiness or wholeness. Does that make sense? So what do you think God is more concerned with? Your happiness and comfort or your holiness and character? Well, that's an obvious question, obvious answer, isn't it? But, the, but you, you can, it's so subtle, it almost, it sounds good, it's appealing, but it's not accurate, it's not biblically accurate. And then the uh, deism, so 
moralistic therapeutic deism is God is a means to an end. You add God to your life as if, as if he's an accessory. Like, like uh, you add to your, you, I'm going to add more chrome to my car or add this or add a stereo system or whatever, whatever you add to your car. But, but, uh, but it's almost, he's, he becomes a means to an end rather than the end. And, and this is what I know, that when people are encountering God, in fact, you know that you've encountered God, a true encounter with God, with the God of the Bible, is that you want him more than you want anything from him. And you know in your heart that if I have him, then I can face anything. So that's a, that's a high view of God. That's a big view of God. And he begins to shake every aspect of your life. It goes from, God goes from concept to reality. If you just have God as a concept, you shape God, God serves you, God fits into your agenda. But if he's a reality, God shapes you, you serve God, you fit into his agenda. Major difference between the two. So is your life being shaken by God? That's the first thing. You know that you've encountered God is because it shakes everything about your life. Here's the next one, is a whole person experience. So what is a God encounter and is a whole person experience? Verse 31 again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a verse I didn't put on your notes. It's a good cross-reference. We studied this back in the Ephesians series this last summer. But Ephesians 5.18, write that down as a cross-reference talks about being spirit-filled. It goes like this. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. And so it's making this comparison between uh, being drunk and the Spirit-filled life. And, and what, what is interesting about that is that uh, being drunk and being Spirit-filled, they have some characteristics where they are alike, and then there's a characteristic, uh, some characteristics that they are unlike. First of all, how, are, how is that like, alike, being drunk and being filled with the Spirit? Well, both of them will make you, and by the way, uh, people go to the bottle to get what we get through the Spirit-filled life, and that is uh, to be happy and courageous. That's what you can get from both being drunk or the Spirit-filled life, happy and courageous. We call it joy. Um, it's not because it's not based on our circumstances. That's, that's how it's alike. But how is it unalike? How do people become happy and courageous through alcohol intoxication? What does it do to reality? Anybody? It distorts it and it decreases reality to where the spirit-filled life gives you happiness and courage because it does what? It increases reality. What reality? The reality of God in your life. That God is for you and not against you. See, we, we, oh yeah, I've heard that before. No, no, no. Are you living in the reality of that? Has it, is it so real to you that no matter what you face, you can face it with courage and confidence? See, it's one thing to know those truths, but see, it's, so, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make those alive in our heart. That's the Spirit-filled life. And that's what happened to them. They were spirit-filled. I've got another cross-reference here. It's, it's Romans 8, 15 through 16. It says, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you have moments in your life when the Spirit of God bears with, witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Something you know in your head, something you know in your head you begin to experience in your heart. That's what I'm talking about. So you know this, but then you experience it in your heart. Um, I had a delightful surprise this last week. I had uh, my grandsons all showed up 
and to celebrate my birthday, and I got a picture up here of them, I think, somewhere up here. Yeah, thank you. These guys, uh, it was cool. They showed up, and they brought uh, this uh, cookie kind of cake, and they decorated it. They decorated it, and they showed up, and now what's the next picture up there? Uh, Oh, look at those kids. Those are my four grandsons. Uh, I've got two more on the way. So we're, we're building our own country, the Davis country. Uh, but, uh, but I, was, I mean, I was just delighted. And, uh, and, and what's so cool, in fact, Ryan brought uh, Braden. He's the oldest all the way to the right. See, he's missing his teeth there. And, uh, and when he, even when he showed up here, he, came, he comes running up to me, Grandpa, Braden. He comes running up and I grab him and hug him and kiss him. And, and when we, I just, I love my grandkids, love them dearly. And, um, and so when they come over, there's that same kind of interaction. And, and, and then uh, the oldest one will say, Grandpa? Uh, he, he says it kind of, he has an interesting way of saying it. But wait, what I do is I chase him around in our big backyard with the hula hoops. He says, you going to get me with the hula hoops? You're going to chase me with the hula hoops? And then there's this, we have this uh, hammock. The, the two younger ones haven't done this yet, but I'll take the two older ones, which are over here on the right. You got Braden and Cohen. And we'll get on the hammock and I'll have my feet hanging over the edge. And I'll push and we'll swing really high. Just swinging. I'm grabbing all of them. And then I'll stop kind of up and we'll go one, two, three. And then we'll swing. Woo, and they'll just holler and go. Woo, and then I'll stop and then they'll go. That's scary, Grandpa. That's scary. Let's do it again. And that's what they do. So it's just so. What's interesting about this with these with these guys, and this is what it, it occurred to me, is that they are legally, biologically, objectively, rationally my grandsons. But but there are those times when I sweep them up into my arms. And love on them or we're in the hammock together. And it's at those times they're experiencing the reality of being my grandsons. So it's, it is one thing to believe that God is good. It's altogether another to taste his goodness to such a degree that it ruins you for anything else. I mean, it says taste to see that the Lord is good. So when was the last time that you had an experience with God that was just overwhelming? That's a spirit-filled life, that the reality of his goodness is just, oh, this is, I don't want to leave this moment. And then, of course, you have to, and you move on, and, but you have those moments. It is one thing to believe God is powerful. It's another to be shaken by his power to the degree you are unshaken by anything else. I mean, I sense that with the ashes this week. We went and visited them, and I could see the presence and the power of God on their lives and in this room with Aaron. I mean, it's pretty amazing when I've gone in and prayed with people or when I've even watched people from the outside in and as they they cry out to God in times of need, I've watched God supernaturally minister to them in those times. It's for real. It's not just theoretical, wishful thinking. This is real stuff. That's just part of the spiritual life. That's what we're reading here. It is one thing to believe God is wise. It's another to so trust his wisdom that worry about the future and bitterness about the past is, is gone. It's chased away. Nothing will make you more radically generous. Nothing will so transform your life than to be regularly swept up into the Father's arms of love and know deep in your heart that you are his child. 
And so it's not just something that you know intellectually. So that's the reason why I put it's, uh, it, is, it is a whole person experience. So yeah, it's truth enters your head, ignites your heart, outworks through your hands. That's what faith is. So it's something that just gets a hold of you. Not only, it's not that you just, you have a hold of it maybe intellectually, but it gets a hold of you existentially, experientially. And here's the next one. It is a balance between head and heart. So we've got to balance this idea. So what is, uh, what is a God encounter? It's a balance between head and heart. Verse 31 it says, and, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, so they've got objective truth, the word of God, but the, how are they doing it? They're doing it with boldness. There, there's an experience in the process of speaking the word of God. Verse 33, and it says, and with great power, there's the experience. They're experiencing the power of God. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. What is the testimony? That's the objective truth. Testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, John 4, 23 and 24, it says that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. So it's really talking about uh, there's an experience in spirit, but truth obviously is the, is the objective part of it. So it's hard experience based on objective truth. So head, intellect, you know, truth without heart, without the experience, is just dead orthodoxy. So if you're just cram- cramming your cranium full of information about God, see, when I study the Bible, and I don't just study it just to get more information about God, to know God, I study the Bible to have an encounter with God, that the God of the words that I'm reading, that I would interact with him and know him and experience him. Yeah, it's going to tell me things about him, but I don't want to just know about him. I want to know him. I want to encounter him through my study. So I'm not just looking for life lessons. I'm looking for God to speak to me and to speak to me specifically to where my needs are and what I'm struggling with so that I can encounter him. So head without heart is, is dead orthodoxy, but heart, so the experience without, without it being based on biblical knowledge, it's weirdness, okay? People get really weird, and that's where cults start start up and all kinds. Of, so, so, it's, so it's hard experience based on objective truth. So it's taking the truth of God's word and making it, it becomes real to you. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there, you know, there are churches, some churches are all about intellect, and then there are others that are all about experience. I want Desert Breeze to be a church, and I think this honor, honors God, that's both about intellect, that we, we are students of God's word, but it's not just dead orthodoxy. We want to experience the God of the Bible. And so that's what I'm saying by this. There's this balance between the two. You see this in the first century church. C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther kind of help us with this. This is what it kind of looks like. C.S. Lewis says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, so that's the head, in spite of your changing moods. That's more of the experience. Regardless of the roller coaster you're on, you're going to hang on to those truths and ride out the emotional storm that you may be going through. Martin Luther put it this way, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. So it's based on the objective truth of God's word. So regardless of what you feel or if it's been a while since you've had that experience, he still loves you. He's still in control of your circumstances. He still has a plan that he's working in your life. Whether you feel it or not, all you're praying is, God, make that real to my heart. So that's the spirit-filled part. God, I, just, I want to live in the reality of that. 
And I wish I experienced it more. I, I, quite frankly, many times even when I'm up here teaching, I'm not in the, in, that, in the middle of it. But man, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade the times for nothing that I've experienced his love, his grace, his goodness, his power in my life. And so it's the Spirit's job to give you the experience. It's your job to seek it based on God's word, but to obey God even when you don't have it and to relish and revel in it when you do have it. Okay, that's an encounter with God. That's an encounter with God. Here's the next question. How does it impact my finances? Obviously, this is going to impact every area of your life, and we've been looking at finances here. And uh, you guys have done really well. You've hung in there with me through this. Uh, it's been a couple of years since we actually have talked about finances. We were long overdue, and so that's the reason why we spent four weeks on it. And it was convenient because we were breaking out this Dare You to Move to campaign. And so it's important to us. But here's, here's how it changes our lives and makes a difference in our life. God encounters produce radically generous people. And you see this in verses 32, 34 through 35. Let me read them again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So you get this, there's this attitude of radical generosity. Verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as they had need. So you got this radical generosity that's happening as a result of this encounter with God. Here's the next point in your notes. Giving financially is only one aspect of radical generosity. So when I say giving financially, and this is what my wife and I have practiced for the 35 years we've been married. And I even did this even before we were married. Um, I'm not sure if my wife was generous until we got married. I think it was because... I think it was because she encountered me and she started becoming generous. No, I'm kidding. No, she was actually very generous before she met me. I know that for a fact. But, uh, but this, was, this, this uh, tithing, which was 10%, offerings, which is over and above that, uh, and then alms is something that I've always practiced. I believe it's biblical, and that's just, it's, it's kind of the uh, rule of thumb based on what God's doing in your life. And so, but there's more to that because oftentimes people will use that as kind of, okay, I've done my part. And giving financially is only one aspect of radical generosity. And you see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that they gave their time, their talents, their homes, their lives. It was, it was a f- all life, all of their life. They're just sharing their lives with one. That's what the word fellowship actually means. Here's the next thing on your notes. Radical, radically generous people will give, and this will be the pattern that will be seen in your life as a result of this encounter with God. You're going to give consistently. It won't be sporadically, but it'll be part of your budget. You'll budget in uh, tithing. You'll budget in uh, offerings. And then the, more of the alms is more of a kind of a spontaneous based on the needs that are at hand. You see somebody that's in need and you're able to give to them or help them out or somebody within your small group. So it's consistently. It's willingly. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, that we are to never give under compulsion or grudgingly. So let me just say this. I, I know that some of you came from churches where they just, they beat the sheep, okay, to try to get you to give. And they just dogged you. You guys know we have a low-key approach to finances. We don't even pass the plate, put the box on the back. You know that you're not going to get that here. We're not going to come over to your house and try to give you know, do the hard sell. We're not going to bring in the, the big guns. They actually, churches that actually hire the big guns and they come in and, and 
put the squeeze on the congregation to get as much money as they can. They do big uh, banquet dinners. We're not going to do any of that. We don't do that. We've, from the beginning, when we started Desert Breeze, we wanted people to learn. First of all, we're not about your money. Secondly, we want you to learn to give for the right reason. Thirdly, we realize that people that really encounter God are going to naturally give of their time, their talent, their treasure, their finances. It's, it's just normal. And so that's all we do. We teach towards that, and we, we just pray that you have encountered God. And if you haven't, that's the first thing we want. We want you to really get to know him and to know him and, and to love him. And so we're not going to do that. And I know when we started, when we broke this out, I know that there, there might have been, maybe not, but there might have been a few people, oh, here we go again, not another campaign. I'm wore out from campaigns. Listen, don't even give to this campaign. Don't give to this church if you're, having, if you're feeling, feeling like you're having to do it grudgingly or under compulsion. In fact, the Bible says don't ever give like that. In fact, it says that we are to give like this. Here's the next one, joyfully. So it's willingly and joyfully. Literally the word that it gives us, it's 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. It says hilarious. That's the word for it. It's just like, oh my goodness. The more I understand what God has done in my life, why wouldn't I want to give? Why wouldn't I want to give my whole life? I, he gave his life for me. I'm going to live my life for him. That's normal Christianity. And so it's joyful. It's sacrificial. It's, you do it sacrificially. Here's what my wife and I, a lot of times, you know, you see my Starbucks up here. A lot of people think, man, that dude goes to Starbucks every day. I wonder what his Starbucks bill is. Hardly anything. Because I have some friends at Starbucks that give me free drinks all the time. No, I'm joking. I don't really. But that would help. Anybody here work at Starbucks? But actually, my wife and I, we actually bought a machine. And we didn't pay top dollar for it. It was... uh, it was about a $1,500 machine. We did know somebody at Starbucks. It was around the holidays, and they were able to knock off about 30%. Plus, it was one of these models that they needed to get rid of. So we spent a couple hundred bucks on it, and that now has probably saved us fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 on our Starbucks bill. So, I mean, I, I, I brew my own. I buy it cheap. I'm a cheapskate. I mean, there's just a lot of things we do. When my wife and I go out to eat, we split meals. We don't buy drinks. They, they tag on an extra two, three bucks for drinks. Forget that. We'll take water. Oh, by the way, we're going to split this meal. Can we get an extra plate? And then what we do is then we, and then when we tip, we tip as if we both ate to bless them. And it's just, it's a kind of a pattern. We cut back in certain areas so that we can give more. That's all it means. He's like, I'm going to say no to this so I can say yes to this. Simple as that. Just a matter of, it's an attitude as I've been teaching you throughout this series. I've hopefully, uh, I heard a few say to me that they really uh, thanked me for some of the tidbits of information I was giving you on just good, wise financial management. If you haven't been with us, you can download all these messages and listen. But there's some good, some good advice in there on what to do. It's how my wife and I have lived our lives. We continue to do that. But sacrificially, it just basically means you stop, you know, maybe going to the movies as often as you do. And you take that money and you give it to the poor or you... You give more to this particular area. It's just, it's a matter of budgeting. And then you do it expectantly. I'm telling you, I don't know how many people have told me this, that when they started giving and making it a part of their life, God has blessed them tremendously, unbelievably. It, it, and, it, and, and the reason for that is that, you know, the old 10, 10, 80 rule, God can make 80% of your finances go further than 100%. Because he's God, supernatural. So you can do it expectantly. Here's the next point on your notes. Radical generosity validates my faith and gives credibility to onlookers. 
Radical generosity validates my faith and gives credibility to onlookers. Verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their preaching had credibility because their generosity was evident for all to see. There was no disparity between what they said, proclamation, and what they did, demonstration. Now, I don't care how good of a communicator I might be of the gospel, uh, but if, I, if you found out that every night when I came home from work, I mistreated and demeaned my wife, making her cry, which I don't, but if you heard that I did that, that would undermine anything that I would say to you, would it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My actions speak louder than my words. In fact, in fact, you need to ask my wife. There's nothing wrong with that. I know that the elders do, and I know that people that are in ministry, they, they want to know, how's Ray doing? That's a good leadership test, by the way. If I mistreat my wife or family or others, you know, that tells you a little bit about my relationship with God. And First John talks about that. And so, so my finances is, is really going to tell me a lot about where am I with God and what's going on and how am I living my life. And that's, it, built, it validates my faith, gives credibility to onlookers. Here's the next one. Radical generosity can be scary stuff. That's scary, Guapa. So radical generosity can be scary stuff, but God starts where we are, not where he wants us to be. But true faith requires first steps. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith chapter, it says, without faith, uh, it says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Uh, whoever comes to God, without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. It says in James 2.26 that faith without what is dead. Faith without what? Yeah, faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. So, so you, it's going to be seen in, in our actions. But it does require first steps. So here's what, what I'm asking you. As you have uh, maybe picked this up and looked through it, I'm just asking you, where are you? Where are your steps? Your step might be, be just to start giving, just to start tithing. It might be just, you might be at the 1%. Yeah, but Pastor Ray, you don't know how in debt I am. I, I, I probably don't. I don't know how in debt. But part of your, your establishing uh, good record keeping and a budget would be part of that. Would you, you would start honoring God in that. And I'm not saying don't pay. I'm not saying not to, to, to hold back on paying your creditors and give to God. I'm saying you need to do a budget in such a way you're continuing to pay off your creditors. But you're also honoring God with your finances. And God will bless you in that. But don't negate your creditors and give to God. You need to continue to pay those things off. And there's a, there's, we've got financial counselors here in the church, really great um, men and women that could give you counsel, that kind of help you to work on a, a game plan to do that. But, but where do you need to start? What's the next step for you? Maybe you've been tithing and God's challenging you to do that offering. It'd be to dare you to move. Or maybe it's giving to a mission or whatever it might be. What is God speaking to? This can be truly an encounter with God. What next steps is he challenging you to take? 
And I know that my wife and I have already been talking about what we're going to give to this. We gave to the campaign, the first campaign, and we've already been, she's already got the card filled out. I mean, right after she, she grabbed the card and filled it out and go, okay, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I said, hold your horses there. Uh, we've got to pray about this. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's see what God, I'm not sure exactly where, where we are. And we're going to do it together and work on this together because that's how we do our budgeting. And, but that's... Uh, it's part of that whole process. It's really a great process for a husband and wife to work on that. Maybe it's been a while since you've actually looked at your finances together. And we do have marriage counseling also available for that uh, to help you walk through that. And so here's the next uh, part of this. And so let's get to the root of this. Why, why would I, anybody be stingy if they've encountered God? Why would they struggle with that? Stinginess comes from pride and fear. Pride is money is my significance. So the pride would be money is my significance. Hey, I need to buy these kind of clothes and drive this kind of car and live where we live. And, and, and that person will tend to be more of a spender because they're, they're using money. Money could be it or it could be a money could be a means to an end to that, that pride, that significance. It makes me feel important when I have a couple hundred dollars in my back pocket. Why is that? Jesus died for you. And a couple hundred bucks make you feel better about yourself? That's goofy. You obviously really, has it been a while since you've really encountered Christ and what he did on the cross? Does that make sense? So it just doesn't make any sense when people say, yeah, I feel really good about myself. Well, your values are all jacked up. And you're welcome (laughs) for me telling you that. And and so the other one would be fear. Money is my, my security. This person tends to be more of a saver. No, we can't give to that because I've got to save more for retirement or whatever it might be. Or we've got to have more money. He said, th- you know, he said three to six months. We're not even close. So then, you, you know, you, you go into overdrive and paranoia. And, and so let me ask you this. Every one of us will fit into one of those two categories. Money will either be significance or money is security to you. It's, it tends to be. And so you'll either be a spender or you'll be a saver. For instance, my wife would be more of the spender. And money would be more of that category of significance for her. For me, it's more of my security. So I I tend to be more of the saver. So let's do a group confession here. How many would say that just by show of hands, that you tend to be more of the money is significance to you. You tend to be more of that spender, more of that spender. Show of hands. Show of hands. Okay. Okay. I didn't see uh, see any couples together. Sometimes you'll have a couple where both of them are that. And they spend most of their life just trying to get themselves out of debt because they constantly are spinning their way into debt. And it's always good to have kind of the balance of that. How many would say then, I guess the rest of you, show of hands, would say that you tend to be more of the saver, more saver? Okay. Saver. So that's good. You kind of have to know where you, what, what are your inclinations. How many don't know where you are? You're schizophrenic and you do both. Yeah, okay, so I'm like, yeah, because sometimes they do really good, and then all of a sudden, you know, some kind of new product comes out on the market, and then, woo, let's buy it. You know, it's like, so maybe your fault is more of certain products or certain items or whatever. So you just have to be, you got to be in touch with where you are. And so um, here's what's interesting about this is in verse 32, it says, those who believed were of one heart and soul... And uh, this is philosophical language of friendship. So uh, they were of one heart and soul. This was unheard of in this culture. In this first century culture, there was extreme racial, uh, class, economic barriers. 
And you could only have this level, heart and soul relationship, this, only, this level of friendship among social equals. And so this was both outrageous and very attractive. Listen to this quote. This is from uh, Julian, the last non-Christian Roman emperor who didn't want Christianity to spread and was frustrated with it. He wrote a friend and said, Christians' success lies in their charity to all they take care of, not only of their own poor, not only of their own poor, but ours as well. So it was pretty interesting when you saw this. We know this, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what deals with this this pride and fear that would cause us to be stingy? It's the next fill in the blank. It's the last one. God's grace fills us with humble courage. I don't know if you noticed this, but verse 33, and it says, and great grace was upon them all. It was the grace of God. And see if you can track with me here. Once you fill in the blank, look up here. See if you can track with me here. So grace is this. This is what grace is. The wealthy became spiritually poor, and the poor became spiritually wealthy. It was the great equalizer. The wealthy realized that all the money in the world is not going to get me into heaven, and not only that, the satisfaction is fleeting. I need to find my satisfaction in God. And they realized that they were spiritually poor. And, and, the, and the poor, unbelievable spiritual wealth that they experienced. So it's this, it's this equalizer. It eliminates both the pride and the fear in our lives that would make money more than what money should be. And so when you understand God's grace and what he's done for you, it makes all the difference in the world. How do you know that money has control over your life? How will you know when money no longer has control over your life? This is what I wrote in my notes. You know that money no longer has control when you're not towering to poor people. That is, you don't feel superior to them. In fact, you see yourself in them, spiritually speaking, as it relates to God. And you're not towering You're not feeling inferior to rich people. You're not sucking up, kissing up. You don't don't treat a rich person different than what you would treat a poor person. See, that's when you really understand God's grace. Let me me give you another definition. This is how we'll kind of wrap it up. And uh, if I were to come over to your house and I said that I paid a debt for you, and you would know how delighted to be until you found out what debt I paid. If I said it was post is due, they'd say, okay, I'll take you out for Starbucks to, are we good? I'll take you to Starbucks and I'll cover that. What is it, a couple bucks? Yeah. Okay. But if I told you, no, it wasn't post is due, it was all of your debt. I paid all of your debt, past, present, future. In fact, I gave you an unlimited expense account. In fact, that big Powerball this last week, I'm going to put in your bank how many did the winners win? $200 million, $300 million, something like that. I'm going to put that in your bank. You'd probably throw yourself down at my feet and call me Lord. No, maybe not. But, I mean, but you'd go, wow, unbelievable. It's always interesting to watch kind of the Powerball winners and how excited they are and how delighted. And certainly, we've all brainstormed, wow, what would that feel like? Listen to me. That's nothing. That's absolutely nothing compared 
to the grace of God, when you understand the grace of God, when you understand your dire condition apart from Christ and the magnitude of his provision, it brings unspeakable and glorious joy. And it works like this. You realize, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That eliminates pride, gives you humility. But it doesn't stop there. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. What does that eliminate? That eliminates fear. And you have an amazing courage. And so you begin to live your life with a humble confidence. And it eliminates that craziness where we we have this pecking order when it comes to money and all those things. Money doesn't have a control over your life. Then you use money for what you need to use money for to make an impact in people's lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And just take a moment. God, we are delighted once again to just to, to talk to you about these issues. And Lord, we want to encounter you. We want to know you. We want to experience you. We pray that you would indeed, God, shake our lives and that we would have a whole experience. We would know your, your love, your power, your goodness, your greatness. And God, uh, it would transform every dimension of our lives. God, in this area of finances, God, that we would begin to see a difference in how we, we spend our money, even how we spend our time. God, may we do it in such a way that it would indeed honor you. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay put just for a minute. I'm going to invite my wife up. I think it's appropriate at this time as we kind of wrap up this teaching series. We're going to be heading into a brand new teaching series next week, next week but she's going to come up here and kind of tag team with me as we talk a little bit about this. It's only going to take a couple minutes. won't take long, and then you'll be out of here. Um, I'll need a couple folks to uh, be at the doors to pass these out. If you didn't get one of these, we're just going to pass these off. But... Um, as you know, at the front of this, if, if you've already started reading through this, this is our Dare You to Move campaign too. We're really excited about what God's doing here in our move. And this is the two teaching series we're going to be doing at the first of the year. We're calling it Move and Build. And, but it's more than just moving. We want God to move in your heart, and we want God to build into your life. And so we're going to be studying the word, the. The series Build, we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah where they rebuilt the wall. And, and there's just a lot of implications about our own personal lives. As you work through this, it talks a little bit about where we've been, where we're going. You turn a few more pages in, it'll answer your questions if you have any questions about this whole campaign. As you continue to work through the pamphlet, it will actually give you steps to take. This is an encounter with God kind of steps as you prayerfully work through this. And then as you work to the end, you will see that it gives you options on different ways that you can, you can give generously. Now, here's our, kind of our final words, and then I'm going to have you stand, and, and I'll send you out with a blessing. But, um, and, and by the way, I, I, let me just say something about my wife. We've been married for 35 years, and it's pretty amazing that she has hung in there with me for that long. She's, she's unbelievably gracious, loving, kind, and there's no way that I could ever have done anything in this church without her, without her love and her support. And uh, we didn't, I wasn't even going to attempt to plant this church and start this church unless I had her 100% buy-in. And it took a little while, but then when she said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go, and I said, okay, it's going to be hard. We're going to do it all the way to the end.
It's our last dying breath. We're, we're, gonna hear, we're here for the long haul. She says, okay, I'm ready. And she has hung in there for 20, 20 years and been a faithful servant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not only to me but also to this church family. So I thought it was appropriate for us just to have her come up and just, okay, we're going to share some thoughts here that we wrote down just about, just very brief thoughts about our heart and about this campaign. And here's my first thought. The church... You've heard this, you heard it last week. The church is on the broadest battlefield of engagement ever imagined. People's hearts and lives, that's what we're talking about here. In the highest stake battle ever fought, heaven and hell for all eternity. Ray and I have never been a part of a church where God is more fundamentally working in people's lives. I mean, we see it every day. We, I'm just blown away at seeing how much God is working in each and every person's life. This is the biggest and the most strategic move in the history of Desert Breeze. Now, we've moved multiple times. This is the biggest, and it's the most strategic. And we're convinced that our best days are ahead of us. We're really looking forward Praise to God. the Anytime we've made a move from a temporary to a more permanent facility in the history of Desert Breeze, we've had exponential growth. Now... We, have, we typically have limited our growth. I talked to, we had uh, some visitors last, a uh, couple weeks ago, and they, they were in a church plant, and we talked a little bit, and I know this by the stats, and it actually says that anytime you go from a permanent to a temporary, you don't have the growth, and that's what happened here when we moved into school. Although God has sustained us, God has done a phenomenal job, we moved in here to try to save money so that we could have our own facility, but traditionally, typically, statistically, you have exponential growth. We're going to see exponential growth. We're going to see a lot, of, lot more lives touched and transformed. And so that's what we're anticipating. That's what we're looking for. And so here's our challenge for you and for us. Right. That we are all called to participate in the most exciting, compelling, and fulfilling adventure this side of eternity, which is building the, the church of Jesus Christ. There is no greater purpose in life than the establishing of biblically functioning community that is redeeming, rebuilding, and renewing people's lives. That's what Desert Breeze is all about. That's what we're about. That's what this campaign is about, so that we can do a better job at impacting people's lives for all eternity. So stand with us while we pray. So next week, uh, we kick off a new teaching series, More Than a Baby in a Manger. There's a little brochure in the bulletin. You can pass that out to your friends and invite your family and friends. And we're going to learn that, that he, Jesus, is more than a baby in a manger. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Do I want you to be more generous? Absolutely. But more importantly, this is what I want for you. I want you to regularly be swept up into your Father God's arms of love and know deep in your heart that you're his child. And then out of that, out of that humble confidence, you would have the ability to face anything and we together as a church family would be radically generous so that we could reach an increasing number of people with the life-liberating, soul-satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ, all for his glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.